Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Welcome to Seasons. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We have been looking forward to this conversation for about a year. Our guest, Bryant Terry, first became famous for his cookbooks, Afro-Vegan and Vegetable Kingdom. He's with us for the hour to share the inspiration and labor pains behind his latest book, Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. The book is a deep dive into black culture, art, essays, history, poems, and recipes. We'll talk with the book's designer, too. And then later in the show, if you happen to live in the greater Hartford area, you probably know about the good work Hands on Hartford does in the community. Stick around to hear my conversation with one of the directors, whose focus is feeding people experiencing food insecurity, including more than 200 Hartford kids who benefit from Hands on Hartford's Backpack Nutrition Program. But first, Bryant Terry is a James Beard award-winning chef and food justice activist. He is the chef-in-residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. In 2020, we spoke to Bryant about his book, Vegetable Kingdom. This hour, we're so lucky to have Bryant back with us to talk about his latest book, which is unlike anything he's done before. We're also joined by the book's artistic force, designer George McCalman. He's a creative director based in San Francisco. We started off by asking Bryant to tell us about the inspiration for the book. In order for me to talk about Black food, I need to talk about its precursor, which is the, I guess it's the permanent chef in residency that I've had since 2015. I've been chef in residence at the Museum of the African Diaspora in San Francisco. And there I curate programming around health, food and farming for the public. But going back to the first program I had, Black Women, Food and Power, in 2015, I was very intentional about that being our first program. And, you know, I expected people to come from Southern California. I thought that there might be people who might come from like the Pacific Northwest. But when we had people who were flying in from the East Coast for a two-hour program at our small but mighty museum in San Francisco, I knew that we were on to something. And I knew that there was a little hunger for this type of programming. And, and, you know, back in 2015, we didn't have the infrastructure at the museum for virtual programming. And so the ethos is kind of like, you come to the program if you miss it and then you come to the next one but i had always been thinking how could we take this magical thought-provoking and brilliant programming and share it with the world and i thought a book might be a great way to do that but i kind of put it on a back burner and then in 2020 post state murders of brianna taylor and george floyd and the national uprisings and racial reckoning you know it was clear that this was the moment The question that I asked myself when this country was being forced to reexamine the way that it's treated Black people and other people of color, how could I be active in the moment? You know, I'm always asking audiences, how can you be an activist for creating a more healthy, just, and sustainable food system? Maybe you're not in the streets, maybe you're not doing grassroots community building, but maybe you're allotting your philanthropic dollars to support the people who are doing the good work. Maybe you're using your power to help change public policies that will remove the physical and economic and geographic barriers that many people have to face to accessing healthy food or that small and mid-sized farmers face to, you know, thriving. And so in that moment in 2020, I was like, well, what's my gift to this movement? And Black food is that gift. When you talk about Black food, 
what is it that you mean exactly? You know, I often talk about the beauty and the curse of the Latino diaspora, mm-hmm. right? Because we meet each other in so many similar places and that and yet we fight each other in in similar places. But what does it mean, black food? How how are you defining it? Oh, you know, just things like, I don't know, like charcoal smoothies, squid ink pasta, licorice. <laughs> black jelly beans? <laughs> no, seriously. Um, you know, this goes back to the way that I have constantly pushed people to complicate their understanding of African-American cuisine. That's been one of the the things that I've been fighting since I started working around food is this very reductive ways in which people think about African-American cuisine. Because when I think when most people hear Black food, they think African-American cuisine, but what they're imagining are two things. They're either thinking like the antebellum survival foods upon which many enslaved Africans had to rely or they're thinking about the kind of big flavored meats, the overcooked vegetables and sugary desserts that you might find at a soul food restaurant. Those are both part or subsets of a larger, more diverse and complex cuisine. Yeah, like chitterlings and pig's feet and, and, and many of the things that people imagine enslaved Africans ate, they are part of it. But even this idea that that's when people talk about the food of enslaved Africans, they talk about it very negatively. You know, it's just like, yeah, there's like the worst parts of the vegetables, the discarded parts of the vegetables or the animal viscera. And maybe that's true in certain parts of the South, but the institution of slavery was complex and diverse. It, what it looked like in the coastal Carolinas looked different in Louisiana, looked different in Mississippi and Alabama and Tennessee, looked different in parts of the Caribbean. And so even just to flatten it and say that, you know, slave food is just the, just this horrible food doesn't recognize that one in this country in the antebellum period, there were free blacks. All the people of African descent and Africans weren't enslaved. And depending on the, you know, the disposition and financial um, status and geographic location of plantation owners, the way that uh, Africans and, and people of African descent cooked and eat looked different. But you can't talk about Black food without recognizing it, as, as I would argue, being the, the original modern global fusion cuisine. When you think about many of the ingredients and cooking techniques and flavor profiles that traveled from West and Central Africa to the New World and how they intermingled with the indigenous foods and flavors of this country and the influence that European food had on them. So when I say Black food, I'm talking about an African diasporic food. I'm talking about diverse and complex ingredients and flavor profiles and classic dishes. And I really wanted to represent that in this book by giving the people from these different uh, parts of the African diaspora the space to tell their own stories and authentically talk about how they connect with all these foods. I just want to point out there, the Southern enemies going to come out. I grew up in Virginia, Bryant. So, you know, don't sleep on chitlins. They're delicious. I love them. They smell terrible when they're cooking, but boy, they are good. (laughs) (laughs) well you know back i mean like look for as long as i knew people were just like talk so about chitlins disgusting and then now you go and you get some fine dining restaurants and you get charged 50 dollars for a plate of chicken so and all (laughs) all of a sudden yes exactly it's like benny like grew up eating it every friday i you never saw it on a a menu and now a little thing of lechon up in is like 25 dollars if you go to fine dining yep I want to add add on to a little part of what Brian was saying regarding Black food. A lot of what Brian and I spoke about in the making of this book was also the self-awareness within the Black community of our food being our, our lineage to our history. That food is actually the real arbiter of history. And that the diaspora of the African community that stretches, that is global, 
this book was an opportunity to reclaim that story. Yes. That I am also seeing. My friends, my Black friends are all over the world. And in the last five to 10 years, there has been this awakening awareness of how interconnected we all are, that borders and countries have been used to separate us in terms of a community, and that there is an awakening to the very spiritual fact that we are all interrelated and that we share this collective history and that we can embody that history together. And I I think of this book as an artifact of that awareness. Preach. And George, to that specific point, how much of that statement is found in the cover art? Because something that is so striking about the book is the cover. You see it. I actually have it. It's in my office. And my kids walk by and they're like, oh, my gosh, you know, so so talk to us about the design. Well, the, the book cover is actually a visualization of what I just said. It is both a literal and figurative. That is the meaning of this cover. There are many layers to view the cover. It is a piece of art, but it also is a map of what is on the inside. And the story of this cover came together over the year that we put it together And it also was one of the last elements that we put together after having designed a totally different direction for the cover. And it became this very beautiful synthesis of the very first conversation that Bryant and I had together about this book when he first called me to tell me that he was doing it and was asking if I wanted to join him in the stewardship of bringing this book to life. We had a very kind of spiritual conversation the first time where we talked about just the what we were hoping, what we were both hoping to get out of the experience of working with each other, collaborating on this book, and what the potential impact of this book was going to be. And and Bryant and I, what we share with each other, even though we're very different people, is that we're very ambitious. We don't think small. It is only big. And what he wanted was a cultural, he wanted this book to be indicative of the cultural awareness, the awakening that was happening all around us that was frankly more about the Black community than any other community. And so the book, if you look at it, it's made up of different shapes and colors that form letters. And each color is keyed to the chapters inside the book. But it is also representative of the global African diaspora that is represented on the inside of the book. I want to share some of those chapter titles with you to give you an idea of the uniqueness of Black food. There's Motherland, Migrations, Land, Liberation, and Food Justice, Black Women, Food and Power, Black Queer Food, Radical Self-Care, and Black Future. And and I just want to say, because we talked last year about Vegetable Kingdom, I think Betsy Stromberg, who is the art director at Tensby Press, did an amazing job with the cover and the interior of that book. And I was very adamant that this book required not just a Black art director, but one who understands Black aesthetics, Black history. And someone who could connect with the content of the book spiritually. And I knew that was George. And I just, you know, want to give 10 Speed props for really stepping outside of their comfort zone and bringing in an outside art director, which is something that they typically don't do. But I think they understood that, you know, a book of this importance required a team who were not just technicians, but people who really deeply connected with the work in a spiritual way. And lucky for us that we get to read it and witness it because 10 years ago, I don't think that that would have been a possibility. Maybe not even five years ago. It wouldn't have happened five years ago. I mean, it, it really was like Bryant and I knew that we were 
in the midst of a moment of, and I, I, I do, I give this publisher all the credit in the world for, for really being uncomfortable. We, we had a satellite team that was creating a book outside of their cultural ability to meet the moment. And they stepped back and allowed us to really address what the nuances of this book were in addition to the, the aesthetic. That's a really rare thing. And I have to say also, you know, Bryant's ambition, the scope of his ambition in creating this process in this way has definitely been felt. I'm working on books right now in similar ways that came out of my experience of working on Black food and designing Black food. I really think that this book will transform cookbooks moving forward, not just the making of it and, and the authorship, who is making these books, but also the process. Wow, Bryant, have you heard him say that before? How does that fall on you, hearing that from George? It's a point that we both reiterated throughout the process of making this book. And when I think about the power of being a publisher now and the work that I want to do with Four Color, I think one of the most powerful things that we can do in terms of disrupting the publishing industry is modeling and showing how things could be done differently, showing that we don't have to make books in the, the ways that they're typically made, especially when they're inefficiencies and things that just flat out don't make any sense. <laughs> but, you know, people just, they, they do things because that's the way that they've been done. And, and as George mentioned, you know, there was a lot of discomfort throughout the process because there were things that my publisher just, they, they weren't used to operating in that way. And we gently pushed uh, them. And I think we're all the better for it. You know, um, now that the book is in the world and the critical, the commercial, all the accolades and success, I hope, I hope that it, it, it shows that when you are working on projects, it's important to rely on people, especially, in, you know, projects of this nature that are cultural, that are historical. You, you have to have people on the team who understand the internal logic of that culture and that, you know, history and, and everything, because that people know when you're faking it mm -hmm. and then and, and the end product, you know, you'll you'll see that. And the response across the board People know how authentic and, and real and heartfelt and, you know, that this book is beyond a book. It's medicine. It's, it's medicine for all of our people and, and, and those who may, you know, outside of Black folks. Because one of the things that I, I said to all the contributors is that I, I want this to be a conversation that we're having with each other with little concern for the white gays. I talked about um, this being FUBU. If you like grew up in the 90s, you know about the, the clothing brand started by entrepreneur Damon John for us, by us. And I said that this this is what this book in and, and we're inviting the, the world to listen in. And I, I hope that, you know, for even people outside of our um, our culture that it's medicine for them too and can offer some healing. You're listening to our conversation with the creative forces behind the book, Black Food. Bryant Terry is the editor and curator of the book and George McCalman is its designer. Later in the hour, Bryant shares a family memory that inspired the recipe he calls Dirty South Hot Tamales. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Coming up after the break, Bryant and George share more about what it was like bringing the book into the world. Because I always say, if I remembered how painful writing a book is, I probably wouldn't do it again. I started to talk about how it's kind of like pregnancy and then I shut myself up. <laughs> <laughs> You're listening to Seasoned. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Our guests this hour are Bryant Terry and George McCalman. Bryant is the editor and curator of the new book, Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. George is its designer. Before the break, Bryant talked with us about how he sees the book as medicine. Marisol picks up where we left off, and it leads to a conversation about the section in the book devoted to black women. It was medicine for me, specifically your section, Black Women, Food and Power, because I've read, you know, you had a long line of moms, grandmoms, aunties who, you know, made the magic happen in the kitchen. And at the same time, you had this epiphany later on that while they were doing all of that, they were also subjected to horrific racism. Mm -hmm. And so to see you dedicate an entire section resonates with me. And I, I know it will resonate with others because it's only now being addressed. And to see it in this cookbook memoir playlist that you created in your brain is really important. And I wonder if you could dissect that for us a little bit. You know, I often think about this quote from a speech by Malcolm X in the late 1960s, where he talks about Black women being the most unprotected and disrespected person in this country. And because of that, I've been very clear that I will be using my platform and position and, and power to uplift them. And that's why I had Black Women Food and Power as the first program that we did um, at, under my chef residency. That's why Rohana Bizarred Martinez, the 17-year-old Afro-Latinx chef, was the first book that we acquired for Four Color Books. That's why the majority of the contributors to Black food are women. And I'm constantly fighting all these things that if you live in this society, you can't help but I mean they're just a part of us. So I'm I'm fighting my my internal, you know, the homophobia and the internalized racism and misogyny and doing the work personally and you know figuring out ways that I can actually uplift and support these groups that have been historically marginalized. And I will continue to do that. And Bryant and I both are surrounded by matriarchies. My family is a matriarchy. I grew up where women ruled and made all the decisions in the household. And, and that's what I've known my whole life. That's what I feel most comfortable with. Bryant and I are both very decisive alpha men, but we, when we are around women, we are quiet and we listen. That's what I know. And, and we were pretty much the only two guys on this true, project. True. You know, the rest, the rest of the team that put this together we're all uh, non-binary, gay, and women. It's what we know. It's, it's the soup we both swim in most comfortably. And it is what felt most natural. And it's why the book feels the way that it does. And that's why it's connecting with so many people. Yes. Our work here is done. That's it. Perfect. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny. Uh, I know Chef wants to talk about some of the recipes. No, no, listen, this is, this, is, this is fantastic. I actually want to talk to George for a second. One of the things I thought was interesting on Instagram, man, you said when you first got the book in your hands, you said that you cried through every page you turned. You were a hot mess. It's, yeah. it's one thing to have designed. This <laughs> a hot <ode>. mess. Yeah. <laughs> but he said it's one thing to design this ode to the Black experience that only could have come from the brilliant mind of Brian Terry. It's another thing to hold it in your Black hands. And now that the book is out in the world, yes. have you had time to absorb the impact at all from it? I've had multiple experiences. Bryant and I really front-loaded. Like, we knew this book was going to be successful. I knew that the Black community would support this book. I knew the white community would be curious 
about this book. But for me, I also had my own personal experience of making this. And I've used the word spiritual a couple of times because this process was for me. It was really important personally to work with Bryant, to collaborate in the way that we had dreamed about. We knew that the scope of what this was was really potent and we really gave it our all. You know, the process was really intense. We did most of this book during the height of COVID. So it was a, a mostly remote experience where I was talking to Brian at some point more than I was talking to anyone else. So it was a really intimate, intimate, intimate experience. And so when I got the book printed, and I, I do a lot of printed things, it's a, it's a similar experience for me where it's just... You talk about the things, it's theoretical, but then it's real. And then you have the same experience. It's like all of the emotion of all of the days and months and minutes that went into it just flood, flood my senses. And it's just a really beautiful, it just, it feels warm. And just, I'm just really happy. I was just happy to have this thing that we had birthed together. And I'm glad you mentioned birth because, you know, I've been throughout the press run talking about we put this book together in nine months but it never occurred to me until i just did an interview today with latham thomas who does a lot of um work with mothers and training doulas that that's the like that's gestation period that's the gestation like, period yeah our baby. we did we were we were to term for nine nine months and i i received the book like at that year mark the, you know, the whole pregnancy period, the gestation, the giving birth, it all felt, it was really appropriate. What was the hardest trimester? <laughs> <laughs> um, shooting. Yeah. The actual photography. That, it wasn't even the first trimester. It was like the last trimester. <laughs> well, as a woman who has actually birthed two children. <laughs> no disrespect. No disrespect. Yes. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, no. Tell us. Tell us. Put us in our place. I'm about to tell y'all. <laughs> <laughs> tell tell us. We don't know. We don't know what the heck we're talking about. You tell us. I'm glad that y'all two ate well during your pregnancy because that's why the book is so pretty. <laughs> no, Marty. So you know it's funny because I always say, I if I you know if I remembered how painful um, writing a book is, I probably wouldn't do it again. It's kind of and then and uh -huh. I'm, I I started to talk about how it's kind of like pregnancy, and then I shut myself up. <laughs> I love it. I'm going to let you guys borrow that one. Spiritual pregnancy. Exactly. Spiritual pregnancy. Yes. Exactly. I love it. I love it. But can I just, I, I feel like I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the fact that when we were putting this book together, I mean, this was at the height of pandemic. This was during shelter in place. And we weren't just, you know, professionals putting together this book and working on a project uh, collectively, we were human beings who were dealing with everything that most of us were dealing with. You know, folks were having family members passing away. People were getting sick themselves. People were having mental health crises. And then, you know, as, as George mentioned, just thinking about like the ever-shifting COVID protocols that we had to navigate just to do the food photography. So, um, you know, it was a lot of blood, sweat, and tears that literally went into creating this book. Yeah, it's tough to forget. I think we all, you know, some of us are more involved than others, but it's tough to forget. Yeah, I'm a journalist, but I'm also a human. You know, yes, Plum is a chef, but he also is a father and a husband. And so that comes through in the book. And 
something else that resonates and, and hopefully this will lead us into some conversations about ingredients and food and all this, but the politics of pleasure and this idea of, you know, it's not a luxury to rest. It's a necessity. And I know for me personally, food for me in many ways fuels me, but it also comforts me and it, it allows me to rest. So, so talk about the intentionality of that and, and how you dove into that in this book. The book is more than just, you know, obviously recipes. Recipes are the through line and this is a cookbook, but we, we wanted to include these prescriptions for caring for ourselves, caring for each other. And it's interesting because I almost feel like while we were creating the book, many of those, like the, the leisure and lifestyle chapter, the radical self-care chapter, those were for us as well, you know, the team who were making the book. And the person who inspired a lot of that energy the most is this woman, Trisha Hersey, aka the NAP minister. She's she's literally an um, ordained minister who attended um, theology school at Emory, but she has this whole NAP ministry, which is really pu- pushing back against these capitalist ways of uh, defining Black people's value and worth, which has historically been tied to our labor and what we can, you know, produce and offer. And she's just like, no, we have to embrace self-care. We need to embrace rest. We need to embrace napping as our birthright. And, you know, all these ideas and these like negative stereotypes that have been pushed against Black people about being lazy and whatever, you know, ways we've been vilified. We need to get past that and understand that just opting out and we've, and it's been, I have to say, it's been kind of beautiful seeing people being like, basta, <laughs> like, I'm not going back to this job in which I've been paying less than a living wage and being disrespected. And I think that's just where we're at in the world now. I think it's a movement. And, and I really am excited to hear the feedback. I get messages like every day about the book and the, the chapters that I, I, hear about the most are the radical self-care and the leisure and lifestyle chapter. And I think it's just a sign of where we are in the world and what people feel like they need in order to um, not just survive, but thrive. So in the book, Bryant, you use the image of Sankofa to describe the book. And the image comes up so many times also throughout the works of the contributors. Can you explain to listeners who don't know what Sankofa is? Yeah. So Sankofa is this, um, concept in West Africa that comes from the Akan people. And it simply means that the symbol of Sankofa, um, one of the many Adinkra symbols, is this symbol of a bird that is, it's facing forward, but the head is kind of looking backward and often the beak is pointed towards or holding an egg. And it simply means moving forward while we are looking back and bringing with us many of the best practices and the the things that our ancestors, the practices, the ways of living, the um, best practices that they had that we should be bringing with us as we you know move forward. And so that book is really rooted in that concept. And, and I loved when we started, I mean, even before this, and when George and I just started having conversations about collaborating, I always felt like George is one of the people who sees me, you know, you know, and you have people you like, they see me, they get me. And what George would often reiterate in, in the kind of, I'd say the embryonic stages of the book is that he saw me as someone who bridged generations, you know, someone who could connect the Jessica Harris's and the Alexander Smalls and the Tony Tipton Martins with the, um, you know, the Rahana Bizarred Martinez and the, uh, the, the Kia Damons and, you know, many of the up and coming brilliant younger food creatives. 
I try to embody that concept as a historian. And I feel like this book really pulls that off in terms of being rooted in, you know, our history and our culture, but also um, pushing us to think about how we can envision a future that is whatever we want it to be, but really envisioning that so that we can then put the energy into manifesting that vision. And I, I'll say that Bryant is being very graceful in his description of what I said. Um, <laughs> I'll, I'll tell you what I told him many times, which is that no one else could have done this book. With all due respect to all of the other people who are in this industry, Black and otherwise, there's no other person with all of the luminaries that are around that could have done this book this way, this intentionally, with this much history, and this much audacity. This is a really audacious book. This is not a shy this is not coy. It is declarative. It is bold. It is hip hop. It is also very academic and intellectual. It's really soulful and spiritual. I don't know anyone else who would have done this this way. I would agree on the fact that it's academic. It is a lot of different things and it's a lot, I would imagine, to put together. Um, and I want to I delve into a, a transition before we get into some recipes because you describe or you talk about a shoebox lunch, Bryant. What exactly is a shoebox lunch? Well, during the period of Jim Crow in this country, African-Americans had to be very careful about the way that they moved throughout this country, specifically in the South. And there was always the threat of violence and even death when one was traveling, especially in these so-called sundown towns. So there had to be a lot of intentionality around uh, the way in which uh, Black folks moved um, around, uh, whether in uh, rural or urban spaces. And so uh, the Green Book was actually uh, a book that was created in order to help guide African-Americans about the restaurants and the hotels and other places that they might, you know, need to access when they're on the road. And, and there wasn't a guarantee that you might find a restaurant that was friendly towards Black folks or places just to, to, you know, grab a bite to eat. And so what happened is that this whole kind of practice of creating shoebox lunches, which are these, you know, and, and literal shoeboxes were used to transport food so that folks could, you know, create these meals that were comprised of things that traveled easily, things like fried chicken and some biscuits and, you know, maybe a little cup of some dark leafy greens that could hold well. And that was a way of ensuring that people had sustenance and safety when moving around with their families. You're getting a taste of just some of the Black history explored in the book Black Food. Our guests are Bryant Terry and George McCalman. Bryant is the book's editor and curator. George is the book's designer. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're going to take a short break. When we come back, our conversation with Bryant and George continues. We'll get into some recipes from the book, including biscuits and tamales and ramen. The canon is deep and wide, folks. Black food contains multitudes. Even when we adopt foods that might have come from different places and give them our own kind of spin and cultural remixing, those are our foods too. You're listening to Seasons. We'll be right back.
Welcome back to Seasoned. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. We're talking with chef and author Bryant Terry. George McCalman is also our guest. He and Bryant collaborated in the book Black Food, Stories, Art, and Recipes from Across the African Diaspora. We just heard Bryant explain the backstory of the shoebox lunch. Biscuits were often in those shoeboxes, and Erica Council's recipe for biscuits really resonated with me. When you see recipes like this, Brian, as a chef, and they come from other people, do you immediately want to try it, or do you immediately want to know the history of it? Where does your head go when you see a recipe like this? I just want to eat it. Um, <laughs> good food is a way to bring, like, widen the table and invite as many people as possible. And so I'm, I'm a human being. Like, I want to eat these biscuits. Biscuits play such an important role in terms of my own food memories and history. You know, I, I'm not going to sit here and be like, oh, yeah, I, I, I want to read and, and digest these memories. I mean, I do. But the first thing I want to do is slather some Miyoko's vegan butter on these biscuits and then like stuff them in my face. <laughs> <laughs> I, I want to tell you why I read it three times, though. So I grew up down south in Virginia and my grandmother would make biscuits every holiday. And my grandmother wasn't a great cook by any stretch of the imagination. But one of the lines on this recipe in the story is exactly what she used to say. Mm. She used to say to me. Baby, you got to have the biscuit be able to hold the gravy. It's got to be crispy to hold the gravy. And <laughs> in here, it says it has to be tall, sturdy, and have an exterior crisp with enough to withstand the ladle of hot gravy. I read that. I was like, oh, my God. Oh, is. my God. That's so incredible. Since we're, we're speaking of the South, can you talk to us about the dirty hot tamales? Oh, here we go. Dirty, 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 dirty. Well, <laughs> well, let me just say to Chef's point, I'm glad you mentioned that because I do hope many of these recipes and stories that people outside of Black culture, of the African diasporic culture can, can see themselves and can recognize their own food memories and histories in these. Because ultimately, you know, it's about us all understanding that we're a reflection of each other. You know, George talked about this earlier. There is no disconnection. So I, one of my favorite food memories is going to the tamale man, as they called him, which was this black man who had a, a, a food cart in South Memphis, the community that my dad grew up in. And my dad would take me with him and we would get tamales. And, I, you know, it wasn't like we had them often. It was, a, it was a treat. But one of my favorite memories when I just kind of ruminate on my childhood is my dad and, and me just kind of sitting on the hood of the car or in, in the car after we got the tamales and we'd share one, you know, we'd maybe get like five. And then that one would be the one that we would share and connect with. And so, I mean, and they were just amazing, you know, unctuous and just flavorful and salty. And I had no idea until several years ago that there's this larger history of tamale making in the Mississippi Delta. So, you know, when we're talking about migrations, I thought it would be fitting to include that recipe in that chapter and reflect on that memory. I think we all have memories of that where we, I can walk into a house and know if they're making yellow rice or white rice, because those were like the staples of, of growing up. Mm -hmm. I wonder if you could talk to us about ingredients and how they serve as a tool for learning. When we talk about embracing or consuming foods or a diet that's best for our overall health and well-being, I feel like there's so much emphasis on like nutrients and micronutrients. And I think those things are important, obviously. But one of the criteria I, I really believe we should 
be having in that conversation are consuming our cultural foods. You know, what are the foods that our, our grandparents ate and their parents and, and what helped them survive and thrive? And I try not to get caught up. You know, there are classic ingredients that you find throughout the diaspora, such as okra and black eyed peas and, you know, dark leafy greens like collards and mustards. Those are our sacred foods. Those are black superfoods. I think you can, it gets tricky when you get caught up on over emphasizing, you know, the ingredients that might be indigenous to the African continent, because so many of the ingredients that we might imagine are, I mean, they're just these like deep histories of different waves of migration that brought things, you know, plantains, which are a staple throughout Western Central Africa, the Caribbean, Latin America, they're from Asia. You know, red rice varieties were indigenous to the Senegambia region, but white rice came from Asia and, you know, peppers came from the Americas and, and tomatoes and corn. But then they kind of immersed themselves in, in different um, cultures throughout Western Central Africa. And, and people just like, yeah, corn is so important in Central to Ghana, but it's not indigenous to, to Ghana. But I think that even when we adopt foods that might have come from different places and give them our own kind of spin and, and cultural remixing, that those are our foods too. It's important that we connect with those and consume those for not just the kind of theoretical, so we know ourselves and you know our history, but these are the foods that many of our ancestors ate in, in the harshest of times. And they're the, the foods that we ate during the best of times and at celebrations and holidays. And so I, I think it's important that talking about what's best for our health and well-being, cultural food should be at the top of that list. And I think that we still in the United States, we talk about food in still very kind of linear, toddler, binary cadence. I'm from the Caribbean, where most of the things that we eat in terms of the ingredients don't come from the Caribbean. The secret truth of history is the migration of food. Mm -hmm. You know, you can you can not know a lot of your history in terms of having documentation, but the journey of food and ingredients and trees and plants will tell you how humans actually traveled and where ingredients came from. So true. Mm -hmm. And I think there's a deeper meaning of food. We don't talk about food in that way in the United States, because we'd have to credit, credit the native population, we'd have to credit the Black community, we'd have to talk in a much more complicated way. It's not as nuanced as it should be. The culture of the food that we eat should be as important as the uh, declaration of it. Preach! Italians didn't even know what a tomato was till the Spaniards brought it to them from here. Right. Let's not talk about noodles. Yeah, yeah. Talk about pasta. <laughs> now there is a noodle dish in the book I did want to talk about. Jerk chicken ramen. The dish is by Suzanne Barr, and it's an excellent example of how black food is just really many things. So get this. Suzanne's parents are Jamaican. Her ancestors are indigenous Caribbeans. Suzanne lives in Canada, and ramen is Japanese. Yet this is her black food. That was one of those recipes that I was like, I didn't know that this book needed that recipe, but this book needed that recipe. <laughs> I, I just want people to like love and embrace all the ways that our food show up. Because I know there's some people like jerk, ramen, chicken. What the hell is that? And yeah. it's the recipe that Suzanne offered to this book. And there's a history and a reason behind it. And eat it because you're going to love it. <laughs> Fantastic. So we know that you are merely scratching the surface. What is next? Black future, right? Black future. What can you tell us about this? Well, I'm going to tell you about Brian's black future, media mogul. 
That's the 10-year vision. With this imprint, I want to continue to support BIPOC creatives to share their work with the world. I am working on some projects in film and television. All the things that I've been able to do with my career, I hope that for many of my authors that I'm working with, I can help them to build out a career that's sustainable, that's financially lucrative, and that allows their work to have global reach. So I will be putting whatever needs to be put in place to manifest that vision. But by 2032, um, I want to be on my Kanye West. Oh, leave oh, it hold well, up. Let me just know. Let me, let me be clear. No, 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 no. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I need to complicate that. You're I about need to, to come to MetLife Stadium, take a residency for a month, wear some crazy stockings no, over no, your head. No, I'm okay. sorry. I'm sorry. Please clarify. Let me, let me walk that back and first say that Kanye West has been one of my guiding lights. You know, I don't know, going back to like college dropout. I've been disappointed with some of his political positions and the way he's been showing up in the media and the world. But, you know, I, I, the thing I continue to be inspired about Kanye is understanding that you have to invest in yourself. No matter how much you believe in yourself and how brilliant and talented you think you are, sometimes other people won't see it and they're going to catch up later. In order to help them see it, sometimes you need to invest your own money into helping you be the biggest and brightest star you can be. I will say that the thing that continues to inspire me about Kanye West is his ambition. That is what inspires me about him. And that's that's the energy that I'm holding. Like there is no stopping me. It's just like if I can see it, I can manifest it. And it's about like figuring out the best way to, not, you know, get through the path to get to that destination. So that's what I mean about getting my Kanye on. <laughs> You're a better cook than Kanye, though. I'm sure of it. I'm sure of it. Bryant, George, we appreciate you guys. The book is called Black Food. It's a great book. Guys, thank you so much for taking the time and hanging out with us. We really appreciate it. Thank you and congratulations. Thank you. And thank you, George, for hopping in. I know you're busy over in New York. Oh, this was delightful. Thank you so much. Good to talk to you, everyone. Bryant Terry and George McCalman are the creative forces behind the new book, Black Food. You can check out a few of the recipes from the book, including that jerk chicken ramen, on our website, ctpublic.org slash recipes. Before we go... In the spirit of the holidays and giving, we've been featuring organizations around the state who feed people in their communities. I recently spoke to Janet Bermudez. She's been the program director for Hands on Hartford's MANA program for the last 14 and a half years. I asked her to tell us about the program. So here at Hands on Hartford, MANA Food Services, what we're doing is assisting folks with food insecurity. Our agency as a whole, we want to help people stabilize by providing a roof over their head and ensuring that they have food on their table. We have our community meals program, our community pantry, our holiday meals, and backpack nutrition. And they're all targeting food insecurity by offering an array of services to folks in need. It's fantastic for for people who need it because I know food insecurity was exacerbated by the pandemic. And in a lot of communities, it hasn't gone away. Correct. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what the community pantry is? So we have a community pantry uh, for Hartford residents. 
and we provide a full shopping model for folks. And because of the pandemic, some folks are uncomfortable still coming into our pantry. So we're doing a hybrid model. Either folks can take groceries to go, they're prepackaged, or actually come in and pick the food that they want to bring home. They get an array of canned items and they also receive fresh produce. That's really important to us that folks are able to walk away with fresh produce, milk, eggs, and meat. And I can tell you that it is a benefit for folks. As you mentioned, the pandemic really has affected a lot of folks. We have a household of two parents, three children that utilize our pantry on a monthly basis. And the mom was laid off during COVID. So, you know, having food in their homes for their family was a challenge. And thankfully, about two months ago, she was rehired. But these services are important to have in place, whether it's families, individuals, elderly, um, people who are living on a disability income, having the pantry available to folks Monday through Friday is a good benefit to help with food insecurity. Wow, Janet, you know, that story, thank you for sharing that story about that particular family and with the mom getting laid off and then getting work again. What would that family's alternative, what would it have been if you all didn't exist? So it's a struggle when families have to then apply for, you know, some SNAP benefits. And we know that although that alleviates, right, some of that need, it's not nearly enough when you're trying to, again, keep a roof over your head. So now you're down to a one income household and you have to pay rent, you have to pay utilities, you need to make sure your children have whatever they need for their schooling needs. And, you know, you have to make sure, you know, you're getting your nutrition and feeding your family. So, you know, it would have to have been a a struggle for them to have to meet that need. So by having pantries like ours in the community, we can help with that along with the SNAP benefits and along with other food distributions that happen in the community. What about the backpack nutrition program? Does that factor into the, the work you do? So yes, the Backpack Nutrition Program, we serve currently um, eight different schools in the city of Hartford. We have targeted schools in the different neighborhoods. Due to limited resources, we're currently able to serve 230 children um, in Hartford through this program. And we deliver uh, drawstring bags because of COVID. Again, we were using backpacks, but now we're down to drawstring one-time use bags filled with food to help children get through the weekend. Um, As folks may know or maybe not know, all Hartford school children um, are eligible for free breakfast and lunch at school. So those are the two meals that we try to cover with this program over the weekend, along with additional healthy snacks like granola bars, cereal bars, you know, et cetera. We're really excited that we can do that and that we have relationships with eight schools in Hartford. Yeah, I'm often reminded that sometimes a child's only meal is the meal that she gets in school. Mm -hmm. And so what happens when the weekend comes? So the fact that you provide this service, I'm sure, is really wonderful for a lot of of families. Um, The name of Hands on Hartford makes us think of many hands, light work. Mm -hmm. Right. Which I say to my children when it's time to clean the house, <laughs> and they look at me like I'm crazy. But um, but it's a it's it's a wonderful proverb. It's a wonderful image. Mm-hmm. How can our listeners help and get involved? Definitely, we are always um, looking for help. 
We can use help in many different ways. Time, talent, and treasure cover it the best. So if you can volunteer and give your time, um, we have volunteer opportunities posted on our website, www.handsonheartford.org. We also can use um, food through food drives. So anybody that would like to hold a food drive, just contact us. And of course, donations, financial donations can help us in many different ways to help all of these programs. And if you go on to our website, there's a donate now button that you can click on. If you want to help in any of those ways or all three of those ways, I encourage you to do so. We help thousands of people every single year through all of our food initiatives and holidays are coming. We do hold holiday meals. So we will have a Christmas meal on Christmas Day. So we're always looking for help on those um, days as well. On those days in particular, but any day is always helpful. Any day. Yes, because food insecurity is an issue that, you know, people face every single day, not just during the holiday season. Janet Bermudez, thank you so much for spending time with us. We appreciate it. Oh, thank you. Thank you so much. That was Janet Bermudez from Hands on Hartford's MANA program. Learn more about what they do on their website, handsonhartford.org. And don't forget to visit our website to see recipes from Bryant Terry's book. Go to ctpublic.org slash recipes. I'm Marisol Castro. And I'm Chef Plum. Seasoned is produced by Robin Doyanagan and Katie Talarski. Thanks for listening, everybody. Next week's show will feature some gift ideas for the cooks and foodies on your list. So don't miss it.